Howdy, folks. John Fries here. Today I'm joined by my friend Nathan Jishin. Uh, how you, you pronounce it? Michan or Mikan or? Uh, Michan. Michan. Okay. Um, so Nathan and I did our Master of Divinity at University of the West. So we were in the same program together. Um, and then uh, Nathan's gone on to do a, a PhD work at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley area. Um, and he's, he's finishing up his PhD, he's defended it, and now he just needs to graduate, uh, which we're not sure how that happens in the corona coronavirus world, but somehow it's gonna happen. <laughs> and uh, so Nathan's research is focused on chaplaincy from the Japanese context, Japanese Buddhist context, uh, and so we're thrilled to have him on to share about his research, his experience, his, uh, his um, take on Buddhist chaplaincy. Um, so to start out with uh, one, like I'm, my idea is like, I wanna interview different University of the West alumni. Um, and some of us already know each other and some of us don't, but uh, one, one of my objectives is just to build community through having people on the podcast. Um, so, um, so I like to ask people like some background questions. Um, so, uh, one question is how, how did you first get into Buddhism? Um, well, yeah, there was not much of any Buddhism at all around me where I was growing up, um, like nearly in the Bible Belt, Midwest, um, so it was mostly just when I got to college, um, I, I took a Buddhism class right. <laughs> and um, got really into it. I, I was always, I, I was raised Catholic um, and always quite interested in religion. Um, I had a number of different sort of spiritual semi-mystical experiences growing up and kind of trying to interpret and understand those hmm. um and so i was always like and not quite trouble but um i was asking like priests a lot of questions <laughs> oh, how does this work but yeah. if you say this how can it? not like rudely or anything but just yeah. extremely <laughs> inquisitive yeah. Yeah. and when i started reading about buddhism it, it was just more of an experience of like oh this is like what i've been thinking as a Catholic trying to find my place. So it didn't really feel like something new all that much, but just mm -hmm. like yeah. kind of hit me and like, hey, this is what I am. Well, that's um, interesting that uh, I interviewed Monica Sanford, one of our fellow Buddhist MDiv uh, alumni that we were with together. And she had a similar experience. Um, she was in the Midwest growing up and didn't have a lot of Buddhism around. And then got into some books and then, yeah, she was like, oh yeah, this is what I already am thinking. I'm not becoming something. It's just confirming how I see the world yeah. or the way I try yeah. to understand things. Um, so where did you actually grow up? 
Um, in mostly in southeast Michigan, uh -huh. um, but then my family moved over to the west side of Michigan. Right. And and when you say you're raised Catholic, like you went to church and uh, things like that, or yeah, did okay. all the sacraments when I was younger, and, or the ones that I could. Right. <laughs> went to Catholic school as well, so I got very well versed in the theology there. Right, right. And were your um, mystical experiences related to Catholic symbolism and ritual, or was it more kind of not that, or a mixture? Uh, overall, not not so much. Um, but yeah, a couple times there was like something in church at least. Mm -hmm. Um, just kind of sitting in alone in a big church, wondering about the universe, like that. <laughs> and some suddenly, like <laughs> some experience starts to come on. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, okay, so so you grew up in Michigan. You grew up Catholic, um, and then you got into Buddhism first by taking a class on it in college, and that kind of made you feel like, oh, this is. Um, scratching an itch that I've had uh, and so that made you want to keep going into it um, so so after you took that first class how did you continue being interested in Buddhism? <laughs> um, well, let's see I, I mean at first it was I didn't know a whole lot about meditation so it was just more philosophical mm -hmm. um, bit historical but um i ended up studying abroad twice a, a six-month study in japan and a summer study in china huh. and both of those allowed me to get a more direct buddhist experience hmm. um and on the study abroad in japan I had to do a cultural research project mm -hmm. and I was like, I want to live in a Zen temple. <laughs> it was like yeah. in the Midwest that like Zen is the main thing I've heard of at that point. Mm -hmm. And it's just yeah. like had these really romanticized uh -huh. um, types of images of it. Yeah. And uh, it's just like, yes, I'm going to just dive in. <laughs> Never really had, <laughs> a whole lot of real meditation experience in my life. And then I just went into this um, Zen temple when I still like spoke very little Japanese and nobody around me spoke any English. And um, they were in the middle of a session, which is like really intensive practice period. So it was like diving in head wow. first and meditating like, whatever, 14, 15 hours a day. And yeah. um, it was pretty crazy, but um, my knees healed eventually. And <laughs> 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 right. Wow, that's intense. That's like, yeah. yeah. Okay. And so, and, and so you had that experience in Japan. So very early on, you were already connected to Japan um yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah and then 
I guess from further study abroad and places like U.S. and other stuff, I didn't, most of my direct experience with Buddhism came more from the Asian side of things. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, it's kind of funny, but like American Buddhism feels a little more foreign to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I, I, dove in on that end and became much more used to it uh, with the sort of Japanese, uh, Taiwanese, and Chinese-type mm. Buddhism at first. Right. Um, could you say specifically what felt different about it, or is that hard to, is it kind of like hard to pin that down? Um, it, between American Buddhism uh-huh. and... Yeah. Um, Well, I guess like some of the Western, the kind of discussion like, well, it's not really a religion. It's just a (laughs) philosophy. (laughs) And and then it like ignores 90% of what Buddhism is. Um, And so going back to the U.S. and some of these, Midwestern temples later to me, I, I guess, did feel a little bit, um, or just like, not temples so much, but like discussion groups and people. Um, it, it was just like, wait, what is this kind of Buddhism? <laughs> um, yeah. So just felt a little different. And then, I don't know, some of the other assumptions, like um, sometimes it was like, meditation all buddhists meditate and that's like the main mm-hmm. thing of what what mm-hmm. it is or um these sort of stripping away of a lot of the spiritual elements mm-hmm. things like that mm-hmm. so, so a number of points just felt kind of different from the buddhism that i mm-hmm. dove into and got accustomed to yeah um I have a hypothesis that American culture, U.S. culture, um, we kind of have a hangover from a dogmatic version of Christianity. So people have like an allergy towards religion because of the way they were presented Christianity. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So then they want to very clearly say, okay, I'm getting into Buddhism, but it's not a religion. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I've met a lot of people that are self-proclaimed recovering Christian (laughs) as Buddhists. So um, they literally describe it that way. Whereas for me, it wasn't so much that experience. It was just a, um, like, like I said, it was just like, oh, this is more what I think. Right. It wasn't a reaction against Christianity. It was more just, oh, I like this, this fit. And, um, but I guess it's like, yeah, it's almost like the embodied aspect of a religion that does involve, um, some kind of faith or ritual or devotion or, or just at least some kind of embodied ritual performance. Um, I'm wondering, like, maybe it's for certain Christians, like, they didn't like 
the Christian doctrine and, and then that that was connected to the embodied experience. So it's almost like in, engaging with a religion through an embodied experience is almost like it's hard to separate it, separate things out or mm. feel comfortable or yeah. Yeah, I think that can be part. Yeah. I think yeah, it might also have something to do with the sort of, I don't know, I think there's a bit of a different concept of ritual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like the the way that meditation through ritual can be very physicalized. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think that's, I don't know, it's something that a lot of Americans aren't really used to in a way, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah, one, another hypothesis I have is like um, the Protestant form of Christianity focused a lot on reading the Bible and uh, there wasn't any more a monastic tradition uh, which would have had a lot of contemplative practices they were doing. Yeah. So it's the the religion came more cerebral and um, language-based and less body contemplative practice based. Yeah. Um, And I think Buddhist studies still, I think it's adapted a lot in the past couple decades, but I think it still suffers some hangover from (laughs) 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 uh, that period of, just looking at Buddhism from a Protestant Christian lens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that is doctrinal based and meditation based, but the meditation is about mindfulness or awareness. Um, and it can be fit and it can be situated into a scientific materialist worldview or at least some kind of worldview where if, even if you allow for nirvana, um, we're not dealing with the spirit world or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, okay. So you, you grew up in Michigan, you grew up Catholic, uh, and then you had some experiences with Buddhism in college, both, while you're in college in the U S as well as abroad in Asian countries, including like an intensive kind of, uh, thrown into the deep end uh, meditation experience. Yeah. Um, um, and so then, uh, at some point you decided you wanted to do a master of divinity. Um, so what led you to wanting to do that and, and which programs did you look at or, or even, were you thinking just Master of Divinity or graduate school in general? And what, what were you thinking about? Um, well, I had, I mean, briefly, I guess, I did my Master's of Comparative Religion in Michigan. Oh. Oh, wow. um, sure. But during that, I spent some time in Taiwan at Foguangshan, mm-hmm. um, at first with the Wooden Fish Program. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went there as a participant and then later as staff and mm-hmm. volunteer. Um, so I already had developed some connection to 
the whole Foguangshan system. Yeah. And that was where I originally heard about University of the West and mm. um, that they were going to start a chaplaincy program. Um, I was actually, though, after that master's, I went and studied in Europe um, in conflict resolution. Uh, huh. It was a, um, a program in peace and conflict transformation hmm. and did an internship in that. But <laughs> after that, I was applying for jobs, basically, and um, my parents were not so fond of all the places I was applying. Uh, really? When you study conflict transformation, uh, just kind of happens to be that a lot of the jobs are in places like I was applying in like Pakistan and Chad and all these direct conflict zones and places where the UN and like refugee camps were and things like that. And um, finally, after a significant amount of prodding, I guess you could say. (laughs) Um, Don't go somewhere and get killed or maimed violently. (laughs) Yeah, they were like, we we understand you want to like do some job with benefit to the world, but can you like do it in a safer place? Dial it back just a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, and so I I was looking around and kind of reflecting a lot for a while um, and just other directions I could take. And Mm -hmm. at one point while I was um, over there, I actually at a couple points, I had led some meditation programs and found they were like, people were really responding to them. And it was, I mean, for people who are really essentially going through a lot of trauma through their jobs, um, coming from these conflict zones, I, Mm. I mean, people of wonderful hearts working in those areas, but just like in some burned of the out. worst situations <laughs> in the world. <laughs> yeah. and, traumatized and burned out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I found a lot of people responding really well to that. And um, I looked more into Buddhist chaplaincy and I thought, hey, maybe there would really be something to this. So, mm. um, that's where I got kind of interested in heading over to U West. Um, I think did, both. Did you, what, uh, what drew you to uh, Foguangshang and Taiwan? Um, or, originally, it was uh, the Wooden Fish program that mm-hmm. they had. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the time, it was run by Dr. Venerable Ifa. Right, right. That's a nun from Foguangshang? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so Wooden Fish is like an introduction to Chan kind of thing? or, or what? Yeah, it's sort of, uh, at least when I did it, it was about a one-month program in Taiwan, all almost all within the main Foguangshan Temple. Mm-hmm. And it's about, I think it was around the first two weeks were a mixture of in-class study um, with like firsthand monastic type experience, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just learning what direct life was like in the temple over there. Mm-hmm. 
And then after that, you get into a more retreat, like intense retreat format. Mm -hmm. So right. um, it was sort of a combination study and retreat type thing. Okay. And was that, um, I know they have like a Buddhist college over there that's different from their academic university. Was, was what you're doing related to the Buddhist college? Um, not exactly. We got tours of it, which was uh -huh. pretty cool. Um, yeah. We got to meet and hang, hang out with monks and nuns over there a lot. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but this was just a fully separate program. And okay. so it was mostly students from all different universities in North America, mm -hmm. uh, a mm -hmm. few from Europe, mm -hmm. and the program was fully run in English. Right. Cool. Um, okay, so then, like, like when you're telling me, okay, you went to Japan your first time and just dived right into the session, right? And then, <laughs> like, go to Europe and, like, you want to get into, like, you just want to jump into conflict zones. And then <laughs> there's some party that just wants to dive into intensity, or, like? Uh, I think... <laughs> You're not out of the time, yeah, probably. <laughs> and chaplaincy, goes like healthcare chaplaincy. You think it's like like you're drawn to intensity somehow, or, or yeah. yeah. I mean, especially I think I'm probably mostly drawn to like um, crisis care. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it might be partly because of the meditation experience, and I at least overall, I don't get too riled up or stuff mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. sort of crisis situations, I found. And How you can keep your cool in a crisis and be helpful. Yeah, and so I just thought, like, it seemed like spaces and times that were, I don't know, that kind of need was most most needed mm -hmm. and um it was like well this seems like some kind of space and time that i can be present and do something and um as long as i have the training and know-how uh, for how to really help uh, right. so i think Does that was why i was partly drawn to those types of situations so it's kind of like you had a you had a calling, um, but you also had an awareness that you needed to be clear about what your competencies are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess that was one other thing that helped draw me to chaplaincy, um, where I I had some experiences um, with people. Um, talking with people coming out of or on the phone directly mm -hmm. in conflict zones and mm. um, people who were really struggling in ways that like, I did not know how to help. <laughs> and right. I just thought, like, what do I say? What do I do for yeah. a person going through this? Uh, how am I supposed to respond to somebody um, mm -hmm. with these mm -hmm. kind of experiences and that was definitely another thing in my head when I thought hey maybe some chaplaincy training would really help 
yeah, that there would be some some elders, so to speak, that have gone through that and learned from their own experience, and they would have some wisdom to pass down to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Okay, so then, so you went to U West, and so you were one of the first people. Then, and were you like the first batch, so to speak, of the end? <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, a, a little more complex because uh, I at first went there before the chaplaincy program got going. Okay, okay. And so basically what happened for me, I joined the PhD program at first yeah. instead. Mm-hmm. And then I got through it far enough. I almost just stayed in that. But mm-hmm. uh, at the end, my heart was just a little more into wanting to fully do the chaplaincy thing. So yeah. um, I did switch over. So I technically was not in the first batch, but I was there when the first yeah. batch of people <laughs> were coming in. And taking some of the same classes, I would imagine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when did you uh, graduate from U.S.? Um, oh, boy. <laughs> um so long ago. Or, or when did you start did see, you go straight from was, to your phd or um almost there was like close to a year between a half yeah. year to a year between okay um so yeah maybe 2013 or something. yeah right around 2013 i think okay and so then um uh, did you, sorry, I forgot to ask, did you do CPE uh, while you were doing your MDiv or after your MDiv? Or? No, sadly, I I really planned, I, I did this, <laughs> I should have done it before I started my PhD. <laughs> um, yeah. I originally planned to do it while I was doing my PhD, but um, it became a little too difficult time and finance-wise, and yeah. I, I just couldn't really afford it. Yeah. So I observed a lot of CPEs and interviewed many more people undergoing CPE <laughs> and such. So I, it almost feels like I did at times, but <laughs> no, I, I, tech, I, um, I haven't actually been a non-research observing participant the NCP. <laughs> ah, gotcha. Okay. Um, so then, well, yeah, so that, so that, cause I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm doing my PhD now too. So, mm-hmm. um, um, what, what made you want to do a PhD and, and why did you choose to go to GTU? Um, I, well, let's see. <laughs> it, for a little bit, in some ways, I was like really I, again it maybe a bit at a crossroads after my MDiv program, mm-hmm. um, and I mean really heavily thinking just about like monkhood or ah. um, that kind of path, but it. 
I ended up, I don't know, a couple things I was looking at weren't working out. And so I thought about the academic part again and through the MDiv um, process, it was just like, man, we need more Buddhist chaplaincy research and literature. Um, and yeah. so I thought, well, I would enjoy studying this a little more. And um, I also, I had become aware that this was starting to develop in Japan as well. And I thought it might be kind of cool to develop these connections through some more study. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, ultimately through the course of the PhD that sort of awareness and desire grew even more as I just saw kind of how complementary those, the Japanese and American sides were, especially mm. from the Buddhist chaplaincy point of view. Mm. Um, just because on the US side, we have um, a very developed history of chaplaincy at least um, and programs and certificates and things that have been around for decades and decades mm -hmm. um, but the Buddhist side of it is still extremely new yeah. and pretty undeveloped and on the Japanese side uh, they have I mean the whole chaplaincy thing is quite new over there mm -hmm. and yet most of the people doing it are Buddhists and mostly at Buddhist universities and such where they're just like pumping out books and research at a pretty impressive pace. And um, so like I have a whole small library of mm. Japanese Buddhist chaplaincy, spiritual wow. care type books. And I just thought, the building bridges between this would be kind of cool. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, like when I, okay, like I chose to do a Master of Divinity as opposed to doing a Religious Studies PhD or doing a Psychology Master's because um, I believe in this Buddhist stuff and I want to actually practice it and teach it as a transformative practice, not just a academic subject and not just um, through the matrix of psychotherapy where you would integrate some mindfulness into it, but you're, you'd have to base your work on psychotherapy as opposed to Buddhism. Um, so I'm wondering, did you have like a similar kind of, did you ever think about religious studies or psychology um, as other options? Uh, and did you have like that same feeling of, well, I want to be Buddhist and do Buddhist things? <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess both. Um, I, I've long had an interest in psychology and mm. even at U.S. Um, more than most chaplaincy students, I I audited extra courses on psychotherapy. Mm. Um, I took extra courses on uh, Buddhist psychology and cognitive psychology. Mm. Um, and I, yeah, so I, I mean, I 
Long had an interest in that, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also, <laughs> yeah, I definitely wanted to, I, I sometimes struggle with the religious studies side of things uh, being a little too external, um, observer-oriented, not participant, uh -huh. kind of firsthand. Um, yeah, like an objective arm's length. Uh, yeah. As opposed to... Uh, like, I just yeah. want to be a practitioner <laughs> at times. So. I mean, I want to critically reflect on it, but yeah, I, I believe in this stuff and want to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then, yeah, also, because, okay, so I was a monk for a number of years before I did my Master of Divinity. And then, yeah, while I was doing the Master of Divinity, I had the sense of, okay, well, this is a new academic program and they've kind of just transplanted the Judeo-Christian model into a Buddhist institution and got it up and running. Um, but it's like it, had, it hadn't yet had, had a chance to fully um, figure out what makes sense as Buddhists and what is something that doesn't make sense to us as Buddhists. Um, and then also, yeah, this feeling like Oh, there was a lot of stuff I learned while I was a monk that I feel like, oh, I wish people doing this Master of Divinity had a chance to learn a lot of the things I learned mm -hmm. as a monk and, and that they weren't getting that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I think there's still so much to explore, write about, practice, do, um, just all the ways these teachings, these Buddhist teachings can be applicable to chaplaincy. Yeah. It's just I mean, like I mean, a wealth of information available. Um, and then, and then integrating, would you say integrating contemplative practice as part of the curriculum is also? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, to me, I think that's, Especially when you look into the variety, the wide variety of different contemplative traditions, mm -hmm. um, like different things work for different people. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I think people try one thing that might not work for them, and mm -hmm. there's then they don't try all these other uh, options that are out there and available. Um, and it, actually, that's one of the things I really appreciate about some of the efforts going on in Japan as well. Um, I was at one place where uh, they actually, they've had a certificate program for a while and um, it's, it basically translates to uh, clinical meditation Tationist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's essentially like a certificate. Mostly it, it's it's kind of like a chaplaincy thing, but it mm -hmm. it's mostly um the people taking it are nurses and doctors over in Japan and mm -hmm. getting extra 
training on both listening skills and variety of contemplative practices and not just like basic meditation, but like really like establishing a base and then working through different kind of meditation practices and getting into deeper states and like seeing how these different types of practices are available, um, applicable in clinical settings. And like, like I said, a whole certificate program developed around this, which is really kind of cool, I think. Yeah. Wow. Um, right. Cause I like in the West now, like we think contemplative practice means mindfulness and, and that's it. There isn't there's sitting meditation, maybe walking meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, in terms of like chanting, prostrations, visualizations, mantras, right? Like, um, like I, I was thinking, like, what would be cool if if Buddhist universities and maybe this maybe this sounds like what is happening in Japan. So I'd like yeah, like to hear more, but almost like a music conservatory where you've got different um, traditional music traditions being uh, conserved and played and taught and learned like a practice conservatory uh with with well i guess that that this is my which i'm I'm guessing is one of your kind of burning research motivations is um well why why is japan having this new interest in chaplaincy what what is chaplaincy and how is it new to them and why what's the need for it i mean well there were and i guess this is getting into um some of what my dissertation explored and what that was about um there were several movements that were kind of starting and just you know making their way Mm-hmm. Um, for a while, but it was really um, the giant earthquake and tsunami of uh, 2011 yeah. that really kind of ultimately pushed this forward much more. Mm. Um, and it was a, like a disaster of disasters yeah. over there, extremely tragic um, and intense. Mm. Um, I, just to say a little about that, uh, I, I think in the U.S., um, a lot of people know the name Fukushima and mm-hmm. um, think of the nuclear part. But um, in Japan, not that that wasn't a bad destructive part of it, but the tsunami was by far the most destructive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it went far up and down the coast over three um, prefectures. And mm. um, it, I mean, this was like at its peak, a hundred foot wave that went up to three miles inland. Mm. And so it was, I mean, nearly 20,000 people in a day. Wow. Uh, just Killed. lives taken, yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, Five hundred thousand homes destroyed. Wow. Um, so this was an immense tragedy. 
mm -hmm. um, and in relatively concentrated stretches of land. Mm -hmm. um, so, and going straight into those areas um, was, it, I mean, the people who went through that, this was, as you wow. can imagine, yeah. Yeah. extremely traumatic. Um, and so at that time, there were volunteers from all over the country um, mm -hmm. just going over to that area to help, and mm -hmm. many Buddhist priests um, from all over Japan going over to volunteer. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it was like, well, okay, we sit and <laughs> we try to talk to you and listen to these people, but you know, with no training, what, what do you say to a person who's gone through that? Um, yeah. Yeah. And just to give one kind of awful example, it, one of the Zen priests um, who started some of the first little act, care activity programs, um, he, he founded what's called Cafe de Monk. And <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a play on words. So this... Monk, of course, in English is monk, but um, in Japanese, the word monku means to complain. So <laughs> it was a place where they welcomed people to come and complain about their lives to the monks <laughs> right. while drinking tea or um, yeah. coffee or things like that. That's very precise, uh, exactly what's needed. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he just started these traveling little, um, he'd set up um, tents essentially at first and um, then eventually like in... Um, temporary centers and rooms, but just spaces where people could come and gather. And at first, I mean, it's very difficult for people to start talking um, yeah. about their really difficult experiences, but mm. to just at first start like conversations over tea. And then mm. once getting into it and getting to know the people listening to them, mm. then there's more of the chance to say oh do you want to talk yeah. more deep about this experience yeah. um, and so that gave a lot of people the chance to really release and also at the same time build some community again mm -hmm. um but like the founder even said um one of the examples he gave and even like seven, eight years later, talking about this, um, his hand would shake as he retold the story mm. of like a, a grandmother who was in those early days just coming up and saying like, like my grandson was like in almost in my hands and then just swept away by this wave. Yes. with nothing I can do like wow. what do I do and like mm. wow. it, it was just like am I what am I supposed to say <laughs> like I want to be there for these people but yeah it's just so hard and mm. um luckily at least a few of these 
priests had some kind of uh, experience either in Western chaplaincy programs or psychotherapy programs. Mm -hmm. um, and so they had some amount of training and Mm -hmm. Basically, um, they set up some brief programs, but then uh, people, more and more, they found, wait, there's a real deep societal need for this, and I mm -hmm. need to develop these programs deeper and further. And so suddenly within the space of about six to seven years, you have um, three full certificate programs now to say, hey, this is essentially a, a chaplain in Japan. Right. Um, and he, I, in my dissertation, I identified like 11 programs that were developed enough to really say, like, hey, these are mm -hmm. developing Buddhist chaplains over there. Yeah. In each in their different ways. So there's this immense suffering from the earthquake tsunami. And because of that immense suffering, it's like people are so motivated by compassion because of the, the pain they see that they feel they need to do something. Um, and so that caused people to move and connect and speak with each other. And in the middle of that, there was a feeling like, what you're describing for yourself that you're, you're trying to help someone, but you feel like you don't know what to do. So then there's a need for, okay, I need to figure out how to do this so that it can actually work. Um, and then it also sounds like it's like almost like a discovery of some underground river of suffering within the whole nation. That, that it's like, like, Oh, the tsunami is bringing it out, but yeah, I mean, I, I think beyond beyond the crisis care and mm -hmm. um, disaster care, yeah, one of the major things that's also come up is um, like the sort of hospice care um, and uh, care for the aging and dying. Um, yeah. Japan, as you may know, is. A, what's called a super aging society. Yeah. Um, it has a, one of the highest aging populations in the world. And so there's just a really deep need um, mm -hmm. to provide some of these elderly with care. Um, so kind of in the middle of this development, um, that has really also become one of the kind of central focuses, I think, of mm. Japanese Buddhist chaplaincy. Right. Um, and so is it Buddhist uh, organizations that are doing these things? Um, are they doing it in tandem with uh, psychology organizations or is there a relationship between those two or... Mm, um, <laughs> I, there are different, definitely different relationships. Um, so one of the, um, even if it wasn't like the 
first first program i mm-hmm. sort of the one that's i i think spurred on this moment spurred on this moment the most uh was tohoku university in northern japan mm-hmm. um which was a large public university right near where the center of the disaster happened mm. um and because it's tohoku university is almost like the mit of japan yeah. so it's a mostly science-based university though it has other subjects mm. um and it's really high rated and respected mm. but it's also a public university yeah. and its status um also as a public university really helped once a program was established there mm-hmm. it helped to say like okay this chaplaincy type thing is something that can exist in public settings without messing with the um state religion separation um, of the state yeah yeah separation of wow so that's a real religion yeah and so it was really important as far as getting the fields a little more established in japan um mm. because that separation is <laughs> i think even far stricter than it is in the huh. us yeah um and also there's the fact that there's a socialized healthcare system over there and most of the hospitals and clinics are essentially like state institutions or deeply connected so it's really difficult and strict to have any kind of religious scented activity yeah. um within those environments and so it was like chaplaincy um pr- Buddhist priests or Catholic priests coming into a public hospital <laughs> like ooh no. um and I, then there's the cultural uh recent cultural history over the past century or so that developed in Japan of also Buddhist priests being associated with funerals and so hmm. um the average um sort of Japanese person in a hospital really doesn't want to see a Buddhist priest walk into the room it's like it's almost like seeing the grim reaper come in they only saw yeah one of the earliest priests in this movement he said he, when he first tried to go in the security guards like denied him entrance he said the morgue is the other way sir <laughs> Um so <laughs> there's a lot of different challenges to getting something like this into Japanese hospitals. Um, yeah. So it's so it's because the need was so great um this university was willing to experiment uh and yeah what normally was a harsh division line they were willing to explore like okay how could we support this need um by offering this chaplaincy training as part of what we do right right yeah yeah and then it really helped that um the people like one of the 
individuals, Taniyama Yozo, um, who I worked with at that university, who really helped um, get this program going. Um, he previously, well, he was a long time uh, Jodo Shinshu priest himself. Okay. And um, he also worked for a while at a Japan, an earlier, the first Japanese Buddhist hospice that got mm. started. Mm. And um, then he worked with a couple Christians in an early chaplaincy program just a little while before this disaster and mm -hmm. trying mm -hmm. to get an early certificate program and organization started. So um, he happened to be an alumni of this university, Tohoku, mm -hmm. and went yeah. up there as soon as the disaster hit and then ended up being a really critical figure in helping mm -hmm. to get this going. Um. So, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm sure we've already been talking about it, but just um, to frame it and, and also, um, well, my point is, uh, what, what was your dissertation on? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably good to back up for a little bit. Um, so it was basically on how Japanese Buddhists have adapted chaplaincy to the needs of their contemporary society yeah um and developed essentially a new field right. over there right. or at least i mean i can't say it's all buddhists uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, but at least had a very large hand in developing this new field right. over there so did you feel somewhat overwhelmed at the the scale of that project uh, and how did you, how did you, how did you yeah. <laughs> um i mean it's funny because i i pointed this out i, I think at least to my advisor um, uh -huh. and at the end of my dissertation it was like one of the big challenges of this was uh, um, most of the writings, the resources I used, and even the programs that I talked about, the majority of these started after I even started my PhD program. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is like all really recent stuff. Um, and in a lot of, I, I was referencing things that were just starting even in like 2018, 2019 yeah, yeah. Uh, within my dissertation. So it's, it's a very, very recent field that is still yeah. changing and developing every year. And just trying to keep track of that. Yeah, drinking from well, the fire hydrant kind of thing. Drinking from what? Trying to drink from the fire hydrant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so it was like, well, I'm over there even. I like I collect all these resources and books and new articles and I'm mm -hmm. excited about getting into all of them. And yeah. I'm already sort of getting overwhelmed. And then suddenly it's like, oh no, th this is published and this is published. And then I'm starting interviews and all these people are saying, oh, have you seen this resource or talk to this person? And like, oh, thank you, thank you. And suddenly my pile of 
things to go to through is like yeah. enough for a 15 year project. <laughs> yeah. With multiple so, people. Like, I mean, it's like you need a team. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So it, it became really difficult to kind of zero in on, okay, what, what can I really at least just r get written for a dissertation to graduate? Yeah. Yeah. So is it, it's kind of like you want to give specific examples, but things are changing so fast. You also would want to give just underlying principles that seem to be emerging. Right. Um, and I mean, I, eventually then what I mostly focused on is, I mean, besides a basic history of this development, mm -hmm. um, mostly around the training and certificate programs yeah. that they developed, yeah. um, and mostly focused on those trainers and leaders themselves. So yeah. in a weakness of my research then is I didn't have the space or time to really go around yeah. all the individuals and the care, the direct care that they were doing. But um, mm. it, I at least got to talk to most of the people shaping this new field um, yeah. in larger ways. Um, so what was your uh, research method or, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm reading, a, I mean, I'm doing my chapter now on my methodology chapter, and <laughs> there's a, a Courtney Goto, who's a practical theologian from Boston University. She, she says, really, when, when people do methodology, it's, it's like the head of a cow, the body of a pig, the, the tail of a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think especially in these, like, religious studies yeah. type fields um very interdisciplinary um but would you say it was more qualitative than quantitative or mixed or uh? yeah mostly qualitative um anthropology anthropology sociology type mm -hmm. look at what's happening mm -hmm. um especially through depth interviews and participant observation Mm -hmm. Um, so I was, uh, mostly from kind of the corner of the room, but, um, mm -hmm. it, looking at what are these Japanese CPE programs like, uh, what are they doing, uh, specifically mm -hmm. through all their activities and, mm -hmm. um, and it kind of sitting through, I, I spent a lot of time particularly in the Tohoku program mm -hmm. um, since it's very influential on all the, uh, at least most right. of the other programs that developed. Mm -hmm. um, but I also went around to other programs as much as I could uh, sometimes mm -hmm. to participate and see, but at the very least um, to speak with uh, people who are leading all of those programs. Yeah. Um, and so they were mostly depth interviews, which are, mm -hmm. um, I would spend a lot of time and I, as much as I could, I met people before the initial interviews, got to know them a little, mm -hmm. um, I, since a lot of these people were 
also professors or researchers in some way or um, people, key people in the field. They had a lot of writings themselves. So I tried to read all the different things that they themselves are publishing. And then um, in the interviews, um, had usually between an hour and a half to two hours of nice long discussions mm-hmm. uh, in depth of all of my question areas and mm. about their backgrounds, um, about their quandaries and developing such programs and things like that. Wow. So that must have been a really rich experience. Yeah. I mean, I was... It, the interviews especially were just an incredible part of that whole thing. So like that, that need you had um, to be with elders, to learn from elders. Uh, it's like the dissertation mm-hmm. gave you a chance to, to do something. Right. Right. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what I, my, um, I interviewed six uh, psychotherapists who are in the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition and asked how they integrate Buddhism and trauma therapy. Oh, cool. Um, and so, yeah, it was also a participant action project. And so, uh, yeah, I felt like the same kind of thing. Like I wanted to um, be around elders who have been doing this for a significant amount of time and learn from them how to yeah, just learn, yeah, learn their wisdom, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. I think a cool thing that ended up coming from that as well uh, was because this is also still fairly new and developing a lot in Japan, Mm -hmm. um, and everybody doing it is so busy, they haven't necessarily had time to always interact among themselves so much so um everybody was also really interested in what i was doing Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. oh i really want to know what all these other people are (laughs) saying about their programs and what you're finding out and yeah how are they dealing with this or that yeah i had the same like oh yeah i can't wait to read your deal and yeah 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 and I mean, I guess that just made me feel much better in some ways because at times at first I felt like, oh man, these are busy people and I'm taking out like large chunks of their time every time I visit. Um, but most mm-hmm. cases, at least, they'd end up thanking me. Uh, saying, yeah. Oh, thanks for doing this and <laughs> making me a part of it. And so that... Yeah. It's both relieving and, I don't know, made me feel like, okay, at least this has, all this effort is worth something. <laughs> yeah, so what, you're looking like, oh, who's this, who's this nerd academic guy who's not, come on, like, he should, he should just get into the work. Why is he going around just asking questions? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I, I admit there were times where I felt like, oh, man, I want to be mm-hmm. in the mix a little more than what I am. yeah. But, but, um, but yeah, I felt that too, that that just the experience of doing the interview is like a contemplative practice in and of itself, and there's something mm-hmm. life-giving about it. I, that was my experience, and, and most of the people I interviewed also, like, at the end shared, oh, yeah, I really enjoyed doing this, and 
So there's something about (laughs) using, using theology, PhD research as a way to provide these spaces of sharing that, that is really nourishing for people. And I think even the chaplaincy training came in really handy in the interview environments as well. Can you say more about that? Um, I mean, just as far as the listening practice and the way of asking questions, I found it to be, it all came in really handy and listening to all of these people's experiences and picking out the places to ask for questions or clarification um, or if they described a more difficult experience kind of catching on to that and checking in with them Um, yeah um, in many ways it just I felt Mm -hmm. they were very complementary practices yeah, and I feel like that, like with counseling work, um, that yeah, well, like like for an example, like this uh, DBT dialectical behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. which specializes in dealing with um, borderline personality, so really intense levels of trauma. So to be a proper uh, example of DBT, the therapist has to be part of a group of other therapists where they're sharing with each other because otherwise the suffering's just too intense and they wouldn't be able to keep doing what they're doing. So it's almost like by you interviewing people, it's almost give, giving them a chance to process some of their vicarious trauma. And yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I think <clears throat> at least in a few cases, I definitely mm-hmm. saw that. even not necessarily trauma but also just processing the the daily quandaries of Hmm. um essentially i mean chaplaincy pedagogy (laughs) yeah how i mean it's one thing to do chaplaincy but how do you teach it (laughs) how do you get another person to do this and do it effectively. Um, so that so, was that was something they were talking about with you, as far as training people in the programs they were training people in. Yeah, um, both that and also, I mean, at least one of the things I focused on. A couple of the things were like, how also are you adapting these U.S. chaplaincy practices? to Japanese culture specifically. Yeah. Um, and also like, how are you incorporating Buddhist traditions and yeah. um, all these different Buddhist elements into w- what your program is specifically doing? Yeah, so it's like, what, what works, what makes sense, uh, what is superfluous or isn't working? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And ultimately, I mean, a lot, just to say, um, of these 11 programs that I looked at in particular, um, the large majority are at Buddhist universities, specifically. Um, 
So some of them are, I mean, it's almost like being connected to the U.S. equivalent of a seminary of a particular branch of Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it's a particular branch of Buddhism instead. Right. So it was Episcopal Seminary or Methodist Seminary. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And so you're going to learn our there'll be common skills that you would learn at any program, but then there'll be specific stuff to our program. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also like often very specific things to that tradition of Buddhism as well. Mm. Um, So I, I I feel like I want to take like a whole semester or two semester class from you to learn what you, (laughs) (laughs) um, for, for just this, podcast sharing with the rest of our fellow U.S. alumni and other people interested in the field of uh, Buddhist care and counseling and chaplaincy. Um, What what would you say are some of the highlights or takeaways from your research? Like, yeah. Um, Well, let's see. On a few different angles. For one, um, just in general to chaplaincy itself, I found studying, essentially studying chaplaincy in a foreign language Mm -hmm. and the way that people use the words Mm -hmm. really allowed me to reflect a lot more, maybe forced me to reflect a lot more on what what do these words really mean? What Mm -hmm. is a chaplain? what is spiritual care? Um, my The first chapter of my dissertation, when I went into key terms, I, a large part of that was just looking at the English and Japanese terms for um, chaplain, spiritual care, and presence, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of first setting the stage with what's the basic understanding in English literature and then how are these presented in Japanese literature and uh, how is that kind of different? Um, And so that also just forced me to think a lot more about, wow, what really is the borderline of what a chaplain is? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And um, I, I feel like, in the West, we kind of skip over that question pretty quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I didn't find a whole lot of literature, like really looking deeply into those basic definitions. Um, That's something I found um, doing my MDiv and then PhD at Claremont School of Theology and reading um, Protestant books on spiritual care and things. And um, uh, uh, so, yeah, they would use the word spiritual. They would use the word God. They would use the word spirit. Um, but it's like, it never really is defined. <laughs> no, <it's not>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> define spirit. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, what does spirit mean? Because from, from, yeah, from my Buddhist <laughs> background, which I, I also draw from Taoism as well, like it's a, it's a different epistemology. It's a different, um, um, like I'm using that Taoist model of 
Jing Qi Xian, which is also common in Chinese medicine. Okay. So Xian meaning like heart mind. Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, did you find is that is that similar to what you're talking about, or or, or are um, Well, I mean. <laughs> I'm not saying that exactly. Just on the vagueness of the the U.S. Yeah. literature, yeah. yes. <laughs> but um, I think that was one of the funny things. I think because of trying to adapt that and talk about it in Japan and try to find words for this, yeah, uh, these vocabulary terms. Yeah. Um, I I felt it was actually defined far better in the Japanese literature <laughs> um, because they were struggling with these questions. What really yeah. is this? Yeah. Um, and so like they mostly use a, a foreign loan word. They, in Japanese, it's spiritual care to say spiritual care. Right. Right. Um, and of course, not, not a soul in Japan for the most part knows what, this speedy to other guys, so they have to start every book with these precise definitions and work that out. Um, and another interesting thing was this term ended up uh, popularizing, especially just after the WHO, uh, the World Health Organization, was debating about including spiritual as part of the overall definition of health yeah. uh, within their um, their own sets of official vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And it, as they were doing that, um, this was like no big deal for the U.S. or most European countries and Mideast. Um, but a country like Japan had no clue. All of these doctors and nurses involved with the World Health Organization were like, well, how do we include this term spiritual within our textbooks? And yeah. things? And so spiritual care as a term actually became more popularized through the medical field mm. specifically. And I, I think maybe largely thanks to that, it got, very specific kind of definitions. Um, yeah. And so it's like spiritual care is very specifically the type of care um, to help somebody's spiritual pain. Okay. And right. so spiritual pain is that, that, that. Um, and mostly they define that looking through um, like um, difficulty with, existential questions um Mm. in life um what is life and death um and what happens after death what what is reality in the universe these different kind of big time questions um that people sometimes go through and struggle with especially well um, going through the grieving processes or the dying process themselves. And, but overall, I, I felt the literature was all just very much more precise than yeah. U.S. <laughs> yeah. Spiritual so, care. So do you have a definition now that you like to use for yourself um, or more than one or? 
Um, I mean, I, I think I like to use that definition a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, um, I, like I, I wrote in my dissertation as well. There's, it's not that everybody uses that specific definition. Yeah. Most of the people really involved in the kind of trained chaplain, um, trained chaplaincy type of field in Japan are kind of falling in close line with that. But then there are other Buddhist priests who just sort of pick up on this spiritual care term and they're like, oh, spiritual care. (laughs) (laughs) So this is like doing special ceremonies to heal um, people and like it goes off into some very different directions as well. Um, But I I guess just going into those terms a little more was one of the fruitful things of this project for me. Um, Um, Yeah, yeah. Keep going. Yeah, there are some other main takeaways. um, And also, I mean, just the, as far as the challenges of adapting chaplaincy both to Japan itself and to um, more Buddhist settings as well. Yeah. Um, All of those conversations were usually quite interesting um, in the literature around that as well. Um, For one, just um, as I hinted at earlier, the how much stricter Japan is about separating religion and state. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And the challenges that they're going through and getting this field going. Mm -hmm. Um, But also um, from the Buddhist perspective, I think just how many, I mean, like we, in Buddhist studies, um, we sometimes talk about like Buddhism as with the plural S on the end, Buddhisms, um, and how many different Buddhologies, Dharmologies, theologies, whatever word you want to use there. Um, Just there's very differing worldviews and looks at how to think about Buddhist care and um, I think a lot of interesting things came out of that but just one example um, I found Pure Land literature and people were talking about how you can't um, say um, there was a lot of emphasis on not using the word like to save and you can't think of it as saving others Mm -hmm. Um, that this care is a type of help that you can Mm -hmm. give Mm -hmm. but um, it doesn't get to any of the ultimate um, 
type aims and like yeah. that has to be left to Amida, Amitabha or yeah. um, the Buddha. Um, so then like the Shingon, um, the uh -huh. esoteric Vajrayana type yeah. uh, books, literature, and people I talk to, it's like the very basis, the foundation of the care is like yeah. on Bodhisattva vows and, uh, you know, saving others, developing the, this base compassion to save all sentient beings um, to end suffering and like very much kind of focused on these ultimate aims as yeah. a core of um, developing the care. Yeah. So it, it was really interesting to see these essentially like completely opposite views yeah. <laughs> yeah. both coming from it's like i can help, Japanese like, like your land it's like i can help you to a certain point but ultimately it's your karma between you and amitava and then yeah Dingon's like i'm gonna directly get into your karma <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, i mean but not that already, this we're already in each other's karma so we're just... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this ultimately didn't make for huge differences in the type of care or training. Yeah. But, I mean, there were subtle points and aspects where it was like, oh, wow, this is a really different way to talk about um, yeah, kind of the personal motivation, at least, and things like yeah. that. Right, right. Um so I mentioned, I know you did, you, you yourself did uh, Shingon, Shing, how do you say, Shingon or Shingon? Uh, Shingon. 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 You did some, you did Shingon training? Yes. Um, so I guess I'm technically a Shingon priest. Right. Um, although a fairly novice <laughs> level right. of one. An entry level, entry level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So I'm wondering what the difference is between this chaplain spiritual care versus um, the spiritual development or growth you would go through as a Shingon practitioner or say like the relationship between a teacher and a student in a Zen monastery where they're having these one-on-one -on -one interviews with each other. Like how is that? different or same uh, with spiritual care in a chaplaincy context? Yeah, um, good question. <laughs> um, I, I think there's a lot of application overall. Mm -hmm. um, and I think especially like the person I mentioned at the beginning of this interview or closer yeah. to the beginning who is leading this contemplative certificate program. Um, he's a really influential figure in this field named Oshda Dayan. Mm. And he's a Shingon priest as well. Mm. Um, although it, he's a more interesting figure, he's also ordained, reordained for a while in Sri Lanka. Um, and got some vipassana 
huh. practice there. Um, spent time, like one meal a day, living under a tree, and wow. uh, things like this. Uh, and then researching different contemplative paths of different religions at Kyoto University for a while, yeah. um, I, as well. So he's he's a kind of interesting figure. And then he got a an order for him and as one of the earliest figures in this movement uh, to get working in hospitals, he um, got certified as a music therapist and then also sort of developed this, like essentially chanting therapy and chanting meditation therapy um, to deal with um, especially uh, dying cancer patients. Um, and I, from a lot of his stories in particular, I, um, most of his patients had little, relatively little to no previous Buddhist experience besides like occasionally attending a funeral. And so there is very much that kind of teacher-student relationship in getting to know an individual and um, seeing how they respond to different types of chanting, types of music, other music, um, also different contemplative practices. And the way he talks about and describes his conversations with patients, you see that sort of interplay of therapy and therapy practice and Buddhist teaching um, with a student really melding together, I think. Hmm. Cause that's what I'm, I'm wondering um, is, is what's, it's like these traditional practices or ways of being and um, the teacher-student relationship that that that's there already in Japan and has been there for centuries, even though in modern times there may have been somewhat of a decrease, um, but still there. Um, But like, is the new thing, the talking to people more about their personal I mean, they're dealing with ultimate questions, but but it's like a very personal, individual context um, that would be more of like what you would think of as like a psychotherapy context. Is is that what's new or? Uh... I mean, I guess the way it's coming together, it's not, especially like these aren't, in most cases, they're not like real dedicated in-depth practitioners yeah. <laughs> um, in this meditation uh, sense, at least, yeah. um, for people using that. It's, and so it's very much a therapeutic sense, yeah. um, but especially in the way Oshta Dayan is using it um it's not necessarily this 
like watered down form of uh-huh. mindfulness therapy um, right. or like, you know, it's not, it just depends on the person. He yeah. Yeah. asks people and <laughs> sees yeah. where their comfort level is, where their background is. Um, but depending on the individual, yeah, it might be a more secularized version of practice or it can be very heavily yeah. <laughs> Buddhist influenced. Yeah. Uh, he might use very specific chants that a per- like maybe a person is really into the idea of Guan Yin, Avalokiteshvara. Mm-hmm. And um, so he'll ask like, oh, do you know the mantra for for Guan Yin, canon yeah. in Japanese, and like no, um, oh, would you like to hear it? Uh, okay, and uh, mm-hmm. would you like to try chanting that a few times together? Uh, sure. Uh, so practice a few times, and then like he'll add in. Now you might want to focus on your breath in this way, and. Um, mm-hmm or like visualize in this way and like slowly add more elements to it. Um, but ultimately in those cases, it's very much a sort of Buddhist type of therapy. Yeah. Um, so was one of your, I mean, the question I have, so I'm wondering if you have the same question, um, was, was one of the questions, why didn't, why did Japan not already have, some kind of version of chaplaincy that organically grew out of their religious traditions? I mean, there were already, uh, since the 1950s, um, there were some elements of Christian chaplaincy. Mm-hmm. Um, less than 1% of Japan is Christian. Yeah. Um, so it's a very small population. <laughs> um, but it is there and there are Christian universities and hospitals and seminaries and such. Um, so since the 1950s, there has been to a small degree, a chaplaincy presence mm-hmm. um, and training presence, but it's, it was always kind of relatively minor. Yeah. Um, the programs themselves were, um, not all that developed, not all that intense, uh, intensive. Uh, so, and also it was mostly like just kept within those traditions. It's, they mm-hmm. weren't people like going out and trying to tra- train anyone outside of their tradition. Right, like if you um, wanted to learn this or <clears throat> or you needed help with some spiritual issue, if you came to the temple or the monastery, we, we would provide it for you. But it, it wasn't provided for, there weren't opportunities outside of that for people to receive. Yeah, that. it was basically just within small pockets of Christianity. Yeah. Um, but there was um, this Buddhist hospice movement that then started. Hmm. Um, basically around forgetting exact dates, but um, essentially it started growing a bit around the 1990s. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
So they developed some little bits of chaplaincy-like practices within that, mm -hmm. um, just to be able to care for uh, the patients there in yeah. their facilities. Um, but it still wasn't quite a chaplaincy thing, and there wasn't, the training was really, I mean, like basic, like probably what you'd get from, you know, half of one U.S. equivalent of a chaplaincy course. Yeah. Um, it, if that. <laughs> yeah. um, so it, it was overall pretty minor and inconsistent from place to place. Um, and then this guy, Oshta Dayan, had start, did start a training program of his own, but it was like nobody really knew what this spiritual care stuff was, and <laughs> nobody yeah. really um, <clears throat> knew what they were training in. And so it was really, really difficult for him to advertise or get that movement. Yeah. First. So I, there were these little pockets of mm -hmm. activity going on, but yeah. it was all and kind of disconnected and um, just such a minor blip on the screen. Yeah. It didn't have a whole lot of impact. And not that it's a huge movement now, but relatively speaking, it's um, expanded quite yeah. a bit over the past, like I said, six to eight years. Um, so what are you interested in doing now in terms of research and or teaching and practicing? Um, um well, I'm, <laughs> I definitely need to get a job because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got loans. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm a year from that situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I might be, it looks like very high probability. Um, I was offered a postdoc mm -hmm. for research in Japan um, okay. through the, um, I, it's like a Japanese association uh, for basically developing the sciences and has mm -hmm. some connection to an American social science association. Yeah. And um, they offered to sponsor a postdoc uh, two-year research fellowship for oh, me. Wow, um, and that would be at Ryukoku University, which is a pure land um, Jodo Shinshu, mm -hmm. um, a Jodo Shinshu-based university in Kyoto, Japan. Yeah. Um, but for, of the Buddhist universities that have developed these programs, that one is by far the most in depth, I think. Hmm. Um, like, actually, has three faculty largely focused on this program and several faculty from like the psychology departments and other related departments participating in different ways so yeah it's like a real sizable developed yeah yeah <laughs> a program I, that's i think is really cool and do, doing a lot of cool stuff yeah. and 
Um, so I would be centered there and essentially partly developing my dissertation into a more complete book. Um, yeah. Just sort of refining it a little better. Um, and then I want to go a little deeper into kind of some of the stuff we've been talking about with Buddhist practices um, mm -hmm. and really how um, they're developing these applications to care over there. So um, first focusing in again a little more on the pedagogy and training part and then yeah. a little more on the practices. Sounds great. So it's like you want to, well, it's your, it's your duty to share with the people you, <laughs> your, your overview so that, that they can get connected to each other through your. Uh, right. <laughs> and then, I mean, ideally, hopefully also build these bridges a little more right. between Japan and the U.S. and things happening yeah. between the two countries, like maybe yeah. and a little more broadly. Mm -hmm. So I think that would be really cool. Yeah, I feel like that for sure that um, as time goes by, we can reconfigure the traditional three-year 72 unit Master of Divinity. Um, we can go through a process of like what, what makes sense for us, what works for us, what is superfluous, what's not necessary. And um, or maybe even, I don't know, more different tracks within yeah, it yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. Yeah, um, depending up. on people's preferences and mm -hmm. things like that. In listening to a couple of your previous interviews, I was starting to think about that a little more. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, one thing I, I thought of, one of the certificates that developed in Japan um, is really specifically, it's the smallest one, but it's very specifically like a Buddhist chaplaincy yeah. program and certificate certificate yeah um and within that one though is the way the main organizer of it and one of the sort of staff organizers talked about it it's almost more broadly speaking a certificate program in engaged buddhism yeah yeah. Um, and so they wanted to, at least to some degree, they want to talk about not just how to care for people directly, yeah. but like what are the what are some of the deeper social roots of the suffering? Yeah. Um, if a lot of Japanese are committing suicide, um, yeah. and this is mostly males um doing it for reasons because of their work environments well what is it about the labor structure and labor environment that maybe should change um and what can we learn about that or how can we yeah. deal with that and yeah in ways beyond just direct person-to-person -person care right like looking at the system as a whole and how the system is causing these uh sufferings in people and so if we just focus on the individual we won't tackle the systemic causes which right um, yeah like yeah yeah um 
And go, go ahead. Oh, just that that aspect of that particular program was really interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, cool. Yeah, do that, Nathan, because I because I want to. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want to develop as well. Yeah, um, like an engaged Buddhism that. Yeah, is looking at social justice issues, looking at economic issues, um, and but also looking at our worldview and if we are subscribing to the worldview of scientific materialism, what does that do to you as an individual and as a society and um, if we are looking at these traditional worldviews and it's related to contemplative practice and uh, different epistemologies, um, yeah, how can that support overall human flourishing, um, especially since there's no scientific data to say that consciousness can be reduced to matter, so um more and more now quantum physics and study of consciousness it's getting to this place that well we actually don't we can't definitively say it it's reducible yeah. to matter. um yeah so what would that mean then about how we're defining happiness and how we're setting up our societies mm -hmm. yeah yeah right <laughs> but anyway that's and that's, all yeah I mean, especially with a couple of the Shingon people I talked to, some of these were kind of really interesting parts of the conversation. Um, I, not all of that was on record, so I... Yeah, 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 you don't want to... Yeah, I can't really go into depths on all of that, but yeah. definitely... I mean, getting a little into the, like, just, like, the aspect of our own state of mind really being important in the presence of a care recipient um, and why and the why of that and the... Mm -hmm how as well to work with that and the mental states mm -hmm. that come in the process of care yeah um and yeah. just the sort of contemplative mm -hmm. non-localized <laughs> mm -hmm. discussion around those potentials yeah i'm totally into that as well because um when i was I did like a three-year residency at a counseling center as part of my PhD. And um, so my experience of being in the room with somebody, I was using this Taoist like uh, Ching Chi Shen, like the way I experienced my energy and me and my body, my energy from like, you know, a more dense level energy to a more subtle refined energy that kind of, gets into just awareness itself or consciousness itself. Um, so my overall, <clears throat> overall body, mind, energetic resonance field and, and how I'm resonating with the person in the room and how what they're feeling, even if they don't say it, I might start feeling something in my own body or energetically I'll feel something. And um, yeah. 
that it's really this a body-centered approach that is also engaging in subtle level of energy. Yeah, that I, yeah, I would love to have a community of people that were exploring that question. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, especially, like I said, the, the guy who founded this um, certificate program, yeah. but also ultimately one of his earlier students um, of the chaplaincy program, um, also recently wrote a book and it was I I mean his deep training experiences within the Shingon tradition um, mm. Shingon tends to have um, much stricter um, in-depth retreat periods than most of the other Japanese traditions yeah. uh, in modern Japan especially yeah. And um, so after one of these where he was dealing with this um, particular practices uh, of, it focuses around um, Akasha Garba Bodhisattva, mm. um, but it's basically like sort of a deep combining, um, melding, unifying with the universe around you <laughs> sort of type of practice um wow. like all day every day for days and weeks in a row and so the book focused at first on his experiences within just those really extreme training environments and mm -hmm. some of the kind of crazy, um, <laughs> super spiritual experiences and uh, different mm -hmm. things that came out of that, but then shifted over to um, his training in spiritual care uh, and um, then like ultimately within his own temple, he developed, he I guess you could say founded a little center um, yeah. of like local community care. Hmm. Um, and so then works, it took some of what he learned from Osh Dayan on contemplative um, type care as mm -hmm. well and worked more of his personal Shingon tradition into his care practices and yeah. had this whole book outlining um, different case studies and examples of how he's incorporating that into dealing with different types of patients. Uh, so yeah. it was really cool. <laughs> oh yeah, there's kind of a, um, um, a common clinical spiritual care skills thing you're learning as well as your own individual tradition contemplative practice and that that experience uh relates to these basic skills that you're learning and might even there's some dynamic between those two things that also is happening yeah and i think also just that i, I guess uh, in some ways touching on our conversation about this like 
observing subtle energies and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, kind of the applicability of not just um, like basic MBSR training mm -hmm. and that kind of thing, but this like more intense type meditation states and other things like that, um, yeah. that I, I, I don't, really find as much conversation about in the <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> in dialogue. Yeah, so there's like a whole yeah, there's like a whole development of spiritual care technology, so to speak, that that could be happening and yeah. happening in Japan. But um, Yeah. I mean I, I think not so much yet still yeah. over there as well, but at least yeah. to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I, um, I feel like we're winding up here, but um, um, if you if you have advice for people uh, who are doing a Buddhist MDiv now or thinking about it, um, uh, what what's some advice you would have for them? Um, I mean, I I guess depending what stage they are in the program. Mm -hmm. And first, like, especially early on, like, be very aware and looking at first, why are you getting into these studies? Um, mm -hmm. And if you have professional aspirations, just like, make sure that those, make sure that what you're looking for is really there. Right. Um, so it, kind of just making sure the bases are covered. Um, but I think also, I don't know, as going on um, kind of through our studies within this, yeah. um, anytime you see like the spaces of need for especially like for buddhist chaplaincy specific um areas or thoughts about that like jot it down <laughs> yeah. um journal about it take some notes um if you mm -hmm. have the opportunity in a reflection paper um yeah or in a further class paper start developing these ideas um like we still need all of that <laughs> yeah. 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 and i i think then just also want to say keep those papers <laughs> right oh um, valuable they're very valuable yeah. yeah and if we can find better ways to maybe communicate uh, mm -hmm. what everybody is thinking and reflecting on i think that would also be really yeah helpful and beneficial because um i think there could be a lot more dialogue between all of us um, yeah yeah that that this is an emerging field um so that whatever training program you go into it's still early days so um um be kind to the people that are <laughs> offering it to you um, <laughs> yes but also don't be uh shocked if you feel like there's more here that i'm not getting like really try to make the use the program to do your own research or to try to connect with 
people to find out more. Um, and then also that, yeah, I feel like uh, for us that have already done our MDiv and are now doing other things that that we should really stick together and feel like this is an emerging field and, and we can actually uh, be significantly involved in uh, creating this thing. Um, yeah. And that, yeah, this, this, this is not a time of just saying this is how it is and we're done. It's more like, oh, what are all the possible things we could be doing or how are the different ways we could be doing what we're doing? Yeah. 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 Feel free to talk. <laughs> Connect. Um, Open up. So uh, if people wanted to get in touch with you or follow you, do you have um, email or social media or anything? Um, I mean, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. But. Um, okay. So I'll put, I can put your email. link in the show notes. Yeah. Oh, okay. And yeah, I could send you my email address. the The one I use publicly more often is just the university one. Right. Um, that's N Mishan, my name. Uh -huh. uh, so N M I C H O N uh -huh. at yep. S E S dot G T U dot E D U. Okay. Cool. Um, and also, um, there's a website mm -hmm. of another program I'm getting more and more heavily involved with yeah. um, called UDC. Um, it's uh, the Unity and Diversity World Council, um, mm. and they have an interfaith ministry within that. Mm. Uh, so the website is udcworld.org. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, and um, yeah, I'm at the moment helping reshape their own interfaith ministry training program. Cool. Um, so if anybody finds a more interfaith perspective um, for, I, since most of, especially in the U.S., what you deal with in chaplaincy and care is not specifically Buddhist, yeah. Um, yeah. if any of that is helpful, um, maybe there's something over there, too. And, and is that uh, online or in person or both? Or? Um, the way I'm working with them for reshaping it, um, it's going to be mostly online. Okay. Um, and yeah, some elements will be very close to what happens in a chaplaincy mm -hmm. training, um, but it's more focused on ministry in particular. So, yeah. um, and also the interfaith element. So uh, how would you do certain um, interfaith, you know, wedding ceremonies? Uh, yeah. Like helping people grieving, doing a 
um, funeral, interfaith funeral, um, and then learning also the fundamental elements of these different major world religious traditions. Cool. That sounds awesome. We'll see. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're all we're all in a big, huge time of unknown here. Um, yeah. But uh, hopefully the yeah the need for some kind of spiritual care and building community and going through life transitions that that's uh, an eternal need that uh, um, yeah it's it's a regenerative field hopefully yeah 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 cool all right well thanks very much and um good luck with the postdoc and uh, yeah I'll, I'll definitely stay in touch and hopefully we can have you on again that you can update us hopefully the covid stuff gets better enough that i can do the postdoc <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. we'll see <laughs> okay